Before I get started in the sermon, I want to uh, uh, just share a little bit. This week I was in Copenhagen where we had the IBC, which is the International Baptist Convention, yearly business meeting. And uh, there was nothing really earth-shaking that took, on, uh, took place there. It made some good connections. I kind of go because it's an expectation for me to go. Uh, but it's also good to, to kind of reconnect with some folks. And it was interesting that this, this business meeting, they were talking just amongst the pastors and stuff and leadership there. They were talking about the recovery from COVID. Because even though it's been about a year now uh, that we've been able to meet without masks and all that, uh, people are just now being able to assess sort of what uh, happened in that time. And, and they recovered how they recovered and it's interesting to hear that a lot of churches really struggle, and they still are struggling as they come out of the, that, uh, those two years of the COVID time. And I was, I was uh, heartened, or I was thankful to be able to say that, according to our records, we have more people attending after the two years of COVID time than we had attending before COVID, which is a total, like, praise the Lord thing. And uh, yeah. <laughs> And uh, giving's a bit down, though. <laughs> but, uh, but attendance is higher, significantly higher, when, when we have a normal week, when it's not Herb's Fair and all this stuff going on. And the other thing that uh, I realize is, you know, when I, when I tell people this, I wouldn't tell in a bragging kind of way, but just in a praise, they'd say, wow, you must, have, you must be a good leader. And what I realize then is that I had a lot of help, a tremendous amount of help, and we couldn't have done it without all the people that got involved very quickly, especially uh, we got online very quickly. Our elder Ngewi uh, was leading us into getting online very quickly. And we had a lot of people involved in figuring out how we were going to do seating arrangements and, uh, and registration, which I know for some of you was kind of a hassle, but it was really one of the ways that allowed us to quickly, uh, fairly quickly get people back in. And uh, Andrea and uh, the people, the welcoming team was a big part of that. And Melanie, uh, Melena, and also just the the encouragement that during that time we received from many of you that our giving didn't drop actually during the COVID time. It's kind of been since COVID, and uh, but it was just a reminder to me of how much we work together as a body in Christ, and that uh, we did pretty well through this crisis. Also to the admin team that agonized every single Monday about masks and how we were going to follow through on the laws. And so I want to let you know I appreciate that. And came out of it kind of humbled that uh, it wasn't my uh, grand leadership. It was really the, the proactive leadership of our overall uh, team at IBCD. And I appreciate you guys. Appreciate everyone who is uh, part of that. Appreciate the support from the, from the background that came from the whole thing. And, I, and it's, it's a blessing to be able to look back on it and say, you know, we came through. And, uh, and it's, don't know what winter brings, but just keep in mind that if we keep together, we can overcome whatever gets thrown in our way. So I wanted to give you that love because now we're going into the book of Malachi. And uh, Malachi, as a prophet, is not a happy camper. And uh, you may have figured that out uh, as we've uh, been going through it. He has some issues that he has, and he has issues not just with uh, the, the priesthood, but also with the people in general. But he also brings the hammer down on the priesthood. And one of the reasons why I said that we were going through the book of Malachi is that it's one of the most, I think, approachable Old Testament books, Old Testament prophets. Uh, because he, what he's talking about are things which 
are just human nature in their relationship with God. And so uh, let's kind of let's move on with it. We've got a lot to cover today. So I'm going to start by reading the scripture. This is Malachi chapter two. If you'd like to follow along in your Bibles, we're going to be reading uh, going through chapter two, verses one through 17. If you're not sure where Malachi is, it's the very last book in the Old Testament. So let's go ahead and get started here. So this is what Malachi says. Last week, he talked, last week we talked about Malachi's uh, admi- uh, uh, admonition, which means a stern finger shaking, at the, uh, at the priests about their acceptance of lame and blind animals to be sacrificed, how they weren't willing to give their best. And it wasn't just the priest, but it was the people also bringing that sacrifice. And then he's continuing on, but he focuses at the first part here, very specifically upon the priesthood. He says, and now this admonition is for you, O priests. Again, admonition is doing this to him. If you do not listen, and if you set your heart to honor, if you do not listen, and if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I've already cursed them, because you've not set your heart to honor me. And because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread your fa- on your faces the awful from your festival sacrifices. The awful is that part of the sacrifice, the, uh, what's in the intestines, kind of the blood, the fecal matter, the undigested stuff. It sounds disgusting. It's meant to be disgusting. All right, so he's going to spread that upon their faces. And you will be carried off with it. That's the stuff they didn't sacrifice at. They threw this stuff out. And you will know that I have sent you this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. For those of you who may not be aware, Levi was the son of Jacob from whom the priesthood comes. And Levi wasn't given a, a territory or a land in the, in the kingdom of Israel. Instead, Levi's descendants were the priests and they were to be taken care of basically by the people as the priests took care of the relationship between God and the people. So, I got to find out where I am now. There he goes. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many away from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. Remember, he's talking to the priests. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people, because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. In other words, you're not being fair with the law. You're not following it closely. Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Now he kind of shifts over to the people as a whole. He starts talking about Judah, but this also includes the priest. Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. So he's including everyone here. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves. 
by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him down, cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altars with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them, accepts with pleasure from your hands. And you ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you have broken faith with her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit, they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit. And do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he will be pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? So as I mentioned before, there's some pretty rough stuff in there. You know, Malachi is not pleased and the Lord is not pleased with where the people of Israel are at this particular point in their history. I mentioned before, if you weren't here last week, this is after the return from the exile. It's about 70 years after the return from exile. And the people are in this place of kind of a spiritual depression. And they're not willing to really give God the honor that is due. And I think the temptation is very often with the Old Testament, especially from a Christian New Testament point of view, is to sometimes say, yes, well, that doesn't really apply to me because in Christ I'm a new creation. And in this case, you could say, and I'm not even a priest. So this is about the priesthood. This doesn't really uh, affect me. But I would push back on that to say, first of all, the word of God is whole. It's not split into two, the part that applies to you and the part that doesn't apply to you. There's a way that we read the Old Testament kind of through the lens of Jesus Christ, through the lens of resurrection, through the lens of his righteousness. And that, of course, changes the aspect of the law. But it doesn't mean that things just don't apply to us kind of carte blanche. Also, something to point out is that as a Christian, you are called a priest. In fact, in 1 Peter, he talks about this quite deeply. He says this, and in this he's speaking to the New Testament church. He says, as you come to him, being Jesus, the living stone. So in the New Testament, there's three basic metaphors for the church. One is the bride of Christ. We talk about that quite often. The body of Christ. We talk about how we are to work together. And then the other metaphor is the temple, that we make up the temple. The temple of God is not a building. It is his people. And you are a stone in that temple. You are the living stone. That's why he calls it the living stone. It's a metaphor. So as you come to him, the living stone being Jesus, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, 
The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Peter does something kind of interesting here. He puts the metaphor of Jesus both in the foundational beginning stone and he puts the metaphor of Jesus the final stone that would be placed in the temple. The first stone is that cornerstone that every other stone has to line up on in order for it to be a, a built with the right angles in place. The last stone is the capstone. If you, it, back in the day when they were building a, you know, a dome, not dome like in cathedral sense, but a you know, rounded top, they would have these, uh, they'd have these, wooden plate, these wooden structures in place. They would put the stones, and then they'd put the capstone at the top, and when they took away the wooden structure, all those stones would kind of collapse in, but get caught by the capstone, and then that would become the reason why that, that roof, that stone roof, stayed in place. So Peter is calling Jesus the beginning stone and the end stone, the cornerstone and the capstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock which makes them fall. So this is those, if you reject it, he becomes this. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, you were, we weren't one single tribe or ethnicity. We were all over the world, but in Christ now, you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, especially if you were outside the covenant of Abraham, if you are a non-Jew, you not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So I think before we continue going through Malachi, we need to understand this question here. What is a priest? What is he talking about? What does it mean to be a priest? And in a very short answer, a priest basically is a person who brings God and people together. A person who brings God and people together. Now, this next phrase, this next paragraph, I'm just talking about priesthood in general across all religions. So if you look through across cultures and religions, be they called priests, be they called shamans, be they called wise men, whatever it is, they do this bringing of the supernatural to the natural in a variety of ways. They often use rituals. Sometimes those rituals involve the, the, uh, the use of our senses. Uh, we see this in the Catholic Church when they do the incense. You see it in some... Uh, other religions, when they actually use drugs, the kind of psychedelic drugs to kind of do, to bring you into this, you know, sense of the supernatural. I'm not saying any of this is anything I approve of. I'm just saying this is what's out there. Rituals are a common thing. We have our rituals. Baptism and communion is a ritual in a sense. It's, it's, a, it's a means by which we come into closer contact with God. There's sacred stories. This is across religion, sacred stories. Sometimes those stories like the Druids back in the old days weren't written down. They were passed along orally. And part of the, the Druids, they were to remember these things and pass them on. It's very common to have a, a priesthood or holy people that remember the stories. You know, Islam has the Quran. Obviously, Christians, we have the Bible. Mormons have the Book of Mormon. And in these sacred stories, the, the individual is given a sense of context of who they are within a greater picture like the family and creation and things like that. And this is across all religions. And Malachi then describes the priestly role at its best when he says, For the lips of the priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is a messenger of the Lord Almighty. 
Now, often in other religions, and this is certainly the case when Paul is talking about the religions in, say, a city of Corinth, they were called mystery religions because the rituals and the stories were kept from people. And you had to go through their teachings and their rituals in order to achieve a place of enlightenment or salvation. Uh, for example, Mormonism, which is a perversion of biblical Christianity, has this uh, ritual that a, a man goes through. It's called getting your temple recommend. And you'll probably notice that the Mormons build these temples around the world. And the idea is you go through a temple ritual in order to draw closer to becoming a god of your own planet. And this, this ritual that they go through called going through the temple isn't just important for their uh, religious sense of being able to advance and become a god of their own planet, which is nonsense, but it's what they believe. But it's also very important if you live in a Mormon community, like my wife grew up in a community that was like 98% Mormon. If you live in that community and you want to do business, then they need to know that you are a good Mormon and that you have gone through your temple recommend. So it's important to the community as well as to the religion. And this going through it is this revelation of this big secret. And you come to this place of closer enlightenment. But Christianity was surprising. Back in the time of Paul, he writes about this mystery of our faith, and he writes about it in an ironic way, because in Christianity, the mystery of salvation or the mystery of enlightenment was an open mystery. It was out there for everyone to know. And in fact, Christians started with the end, it started with the goal of salvation. It said that, if, that Jesus Christ was the very word of God made flesh, he died for the sins of all humanity. He rose again on the third day. And if you believe in him, you put your trust in him and what he has done, then you will also have life eternal. And this is an important thing to understand. It's an important thing to understand today because we have a lot of religions presented to us that still go this direction. Most religions do this. Teachings and rituals lead to enlightenment or salvation. So the teachings and the rituals, you have to learn all this stuff. They lead to enlightenment and salvation. Uh, an example, a different example today, which is very common in our modern day, Scientology. Have you heard of Scientology? Crazy. Just to let you know. But they have this process where you, you, you go through their, their, uh, their, their little classes, and each class costs significantly more for you to take until you reach the point where you are clear. And when you're clear, you, you learn the vast, you know, secret knowledge of the universe, which is that there was this bad guy a couple billion years ago named Xenu, who took a bunch of people and dropped them into volcanoes, nuked them with hydrogen bombs, and their distressed spirits are running around and attaching themselves to your life, and that's why things go wrong. It's no surprise that Scientology was written literally by a science fiction author named L. Ron Hubbard. He was a, literally a science fiction author. But this is fairly common. You go through the teachings and rituals, and they want, to keep, they want to keep the enlightenment to salvation a secret because that's where you get the money. You're leading people in. And this kind of mystery religion was also very common in the time of Paul. Well, Christianity is kind of the opposite. Christianity starts with salvation. It starts with salvation. It starts with, hey, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that he died for your sins, rose again. You know, as the scripture says, if you uh, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised from the dead, you'll be saved. And then as we walk through our faith, we learn to, we kind of go back, we learn to actually live this thing out. 
How do we live out this grace that we've been given? How do we live out this righteousness that we have been given in our lives? It's kind of an opposite way of approaching things. And this is why we need grace. We need grace because we are allowed to begin at the end. We're allowed to begin at the goal. We start our faith with, hey, I'm saved. I have salvation. How did you get there? Did you earn it? Do you, do you know all the teachings of your faith? Do you know how to get there? No, that's right. You don't know. That's why it's grace. You don't know how you got there. Most of us, when we became believers, if you sat down with some theologian and he began to ask you deep questions like, well, tell me your understanding of sacerdotal eschatology. You'd be like, huh? Tell me how the law of Old Testament, how the grace of Christ interacts with the law of the Old Testament and affects your life today. I don't, I don't know. That's right. And it's okay you don't know because you started at the end and you were given the grace because you didn't earn it. It's like running a race and, and the guy says, hey, you've already won. He said, but I haven't even gone around the track one time. He's like, that's right. Don't worry about it. You're already there. Then you spend the rest of your life figuring out, how did I get there? That's the working out your salvation. Understanding, what does it mean to be in Christ? What does it mean to have his righteousness? What does it mean? All these things that, that then you kind of grow into that who you are in Christ, that's our lifetime walk. This is significant to understand. Because most religions want you to go through teachings and rituals that lead to enlightenment. Christianity says, here's the enlightenment, here's the salvation. Now you've got that from this safe place in Christ. Figure out what that means. Work out your salvation. So in Malachi, so this is important to understand because this is what makes you a priest. You don't have to know everything just to tell someone, Jesus Christ died for your sins, rose again on the third day. If you will put your trust in the fact that he'd also died for your sins, if you, believe in, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised from the dead, you'll be saved. And any of you can share that message. You don't have to have all the answers because you're sharing a message of grace. And they say, well, how did you get there? How did I get there? Well, we can figure that out. But the fact is, because of your trust in what Jesus has done, you're already there. And you can share that. You don't have to be a theologian to share that. You don't have to understand everything about righteousness to share that. And this is what makes you a priest. This is why he says you are a holy priesthood. Because you can do what's necessary to help someone who is in the natural meet the supernatural, which is God. Share with them the end goal. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Acts 16. You can do that. And it's by grace they're saved. Not by your deep knowledge or their knowledge. It's not to say we shouldn't seek knowledge. But we don't have to have a knowledge about everything in order to be saved. So in Malachi's time, though, the priests, they had become self-serving and apathetic. So you're a priest. Now let's go back now into this, how he's talking about to these priests. And because they were self-serving and apathetic, they were dishonoring God. And what was the consequences of that dishonor? It says, if you do not listen... And if you do not set your heart to honor my name, I will send a curse upon you. I will curse your blessings. I've already cursed them because you've not set your heart to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival sacrifices. And you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you this admonition 
so that my covenant with Levi may continue. And he's kind of clearing them out. So basically, the consequences of a self-serving priesthood was a powerless priesthood. It was powerless. Any effect it was having on the people, if it was having any effect at all, was a negative effect. It wasn't drawing people closer to God. It was pushing them away from God. And because of this, not only would the priests be cursed, but the blessings of the priests would also become curses. And their life of apathy and dishonor would become contagious. As people looked at the priesthood and said, well, if they're doing that, then why can't I? And their dishonor was spreading throughout the entire population. And then he says something interesting. He says, because of you, I'll rebuke your descendants. He's moving, toward a, he's moving toward another place he's going to talk to him about, which is the place of marriage. So he talks about their dishonoring. And then he says, you know, because of this place, I'm going to rebuke your descendants. And there's a lot of talk. If you, if you go into Christendom, if you, if you were to Google or maybe some of you have heard, there's a lot of talk about this thing called generational sin. Kind of this idea that there's certain sin that sort of flows from one generation to another within a family. And there's a spiritual aspect to it, but a lot of people really focus on the spirit. So they'll say things, well, you have a spirit of alcoholism in your family or a spirit of divorce in the family or whatever. And this is my opinion, though, and you can take this or leave this. But I tend to think of generational sin. There's also a, a very strong aspect to it, which is taught sin. It's taught. And it's taught in such a manner that it, because it comes from, to children from people they trust and love, such as their parents, their teachers, the people that they look up to as, as people of faith, because it's taught to them, they don't recognize that it's a sin. I think one of the most common ones, uh, certainly in my country's history, is that sin of racism. I've known people who are very sensitive to uh, things like, well, that's gossip, and we shouldn't do that, or this is financial uh, lack of integrity, we shouldn't do that, and yet we'll be blind to the racism that just flows out of their mouths like water. They're, they're completely unaware. There was a lady one time, <laughs> she was talking about a mission trip she'd done, of all things, and she was talking about bartering with people, and she goes, yeah, you know, well, we got, into the, we got in this group together, and we started bartering, and I was trying to Jew him down, and she just kept going on. And that, that phrase, Jew him down, is not a good one to be saying. You know, it's a, it's a racial, anti-Semitic type of thing to say, to Jew him down, to try and get him to come in at less. Completely unaware. And, and this was a woman of a, a sweetheart. She gave of herself. She... She wanted to help the poor, and she did help the poor. She wasn't just a want to, she did. But this was just a thing that she had been taught. And society today, another example is how society today is basically teaching our children a whole different view of, of uh, you know, stuff about gender. A completely different view, and the kids are learning this from people they respect. And as a result of learning it from people they respect, they don't really see the danger in it. So this is what I, how I really understand a lot of generational sin. There's certainly a, a, an evil, sinful aspect to it, but a lot of it is taught. And when it comes to honoring God, who do children learn from? Who are children going to learn from when it comes to understanding what it means to honor God? 
And when it comes to honor in general, who do children learn from? When it comes to how they approach authority, how they approach a boss, which they're going to have to deal with later in life, who do they learn from? Well, they learn from their parents. They learn from the example of the parents and people whom they respect. And it's the same when it comes to marriage. Most children, and this is important for parents to understand, and we're doing this big marriage uh, course right now, most children see the example lived out in front of them by their parents as normal. This is what a normal marriage is. And it can be a dysfunctional marriage. It can have screaming going on. There can even be physical abuse going on. But because the kids grow up in it and you are their model, this is what they see as normal. And you can see if if a child grows up, this is their definition of normal. And then they get married and they bring this normality into their marriage. There's going to be some big problems. It's this generational sin that gets passed on. And so Malachi, Malachi goes from addressing the lack of honor given to God by priests who were presenting lame and blind sacrifices to their marriages. He says this, Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. Marrying outside their faith was something that the Israelites habitually did. And it was a habitual problem because every time the Israelites married outside their faith, they would start worshiping the gods of, the, of their spouses that they married outside the faith. I mean, Solomon, we always talk about the wisdom of Solomon. You read Solomon's story at the end of his life. He was building temples to other gods because he had married outside his faith. He was building temples to other gods. Mr. Wise Man, like his dad, generational sin, doesn't end his kingship very well. And some people say, well, this is just an Old Testament concept. No, it's in the New Testament as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul writes, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. He's talking about marriage here. For what, does, what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What do fellowship... What fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Baal? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Now, I know some of you are married to unbelievers, and he goes on to actually deal with that particular situation. He's not saying, therefore, all all you should run out and divorce your unbelieving spouse. But he is talking to the person going into marriage, saying, don't tie yourself with someone who doesn't have the same understanding of God that you have. Because you will never be able to share that deepest thing with them. And people here can tell you who are in that situation, it brings grief into the relationship. So the other thing the priests were then doing, they were also, they were, the people were uh, marrying outside their, their faith. But they also were divorcing, divorcing their wives. Just like kicking them to the curb because it was easy to do so. You just had to say to your wife as a man three times, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, poof, done. And she had no rights. She had no rights. She didn't get half the property. There were no lawyers. And what was dangerous, and this is what Jesus, they they talked to Jesus about this later on, was dangerous is that if no one was a witness to this, if she then, as a divorced woman, found someone else to be with, her husband could then accuse her of adultery, say, I never said that she was div- I divorced her. And then she gets stoned to death. 
So he says, another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altars with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? And it's because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth because you've broken faith with her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit, they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. This dishonorable thing was being done and it was going against what God desired, which was to produce a godly offspring. And it was also a dishonor that was being done to the women who in their later years were just being kind of kicked to the curb. Not kinda, they were being kicked to the curb. And it led the prophet to make this bold proclamation. And I think it's important to understand the context of this proclamation is what we just read. Because sometimes people use this verse to beat people over the head who have been through a divorce. And the divorce isn't necessarily within this same context. But then he says in verse 16, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate men's covering himself with violence as well as with their garment, says the Lord Almighty. The context here is God hates divorce not because it's just breaking some kind of rule or some regulation, which is how kind of legalistic Christianity will often approach this. But he hates it because how it breaks the human heart and the violence done to the soul of a person who has all of a sudden had this relationship ripped out of their lives. And also because apparently the men were being quite violent. They were covering themselves in violence just as casually as they would cover themselves in their clothing. And God hated that. He hated the violence taking place where men were casually being violent toward their wives. Spiritually, emotionally, physically. He doesn't really, you know, separate those things out. I think it's just kind of a violence in general. And he hated that these women were being placed in a situation of utter destitution, being set outside the community, kind of in the place of being the walking dead. He hated that. Because these are his daughters. And so this is where all this comes back around to us. Comes back around to us. According to 1 Peter, which we just read, we're all through the cross of Christ priests in this world. And where Israel was a nation which drew other people, their goal, their, what they were meant to do was to draw other nations to the idea of this is what it means to be a nation under God, which they totally messed up. And then God moves that plan over to the church. This is why the church is called the New Israel in some places, especially Book of Romans. As the church, we are representatives of the kingdom of God. And this is why he says as representatives of the kingdom of God, we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And why? So that we can declare praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you would not received mercy, now you have received mercy. And that's who you are. If you're in Christ, you're part of this chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And as such, the role of the priest is one that we live to this day. We are representing God in the world. 
And I know sometimes people find that to be a heavy burden. They're like, man, I'm not worthy of representing God in this world. No one's really worthy. But because you have a restored eternal life made possible through what Jesus Christ has done and your faith in him, you do know enough to reach out to people who are wandering around trying to earn their way to salvation or trying to somehow define a relationship with God that is outside the biblical expectation, the biblical norm. You know enough to say to them, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. So may we live that with courage and conviction. Because a cowardly priest or a priest that wants to deny their role is like one that is doing dishonor to God. And maybe though enter into this understanding we're under grace. You don't have to have all the questions answered. I don't have all the questions answered. And I've been doing this for a long time. And I've been digging into God's word deep for a long time. I don't have all the answers to everything. But I do know this. If I confess with my mouth Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in my heart God raised him from the dead, then I'll be saved. And so will you. And so will anyone that you share that truth with. So may we be committed to sharing this. May we be committed to being salt and light. But also then committed to discipleship. Because it's as disciples that we grow deeper into what it means then to walk this faith out and to actually reflect the righteousness that we've already been given in Christ. And in doing that, hopefully draw people to know him as Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word in its whole. Uh, Old Testament and New Testament, Lord, we're thankful that you have allowed us as Christians to have the context of our faith founded in your word, your ancient word. And Lord, we pray that in this role that you've privileged us to have, everyone who is a believer, this role of being a priest, a person that can bring the natural person into a relationship with the supernatural God by just simply telling them the truth, that Jesus Christ the very word made flesh, died for them, taking upon himself their sins so that they would not have to carry it for themselves into eternal hell. And that by trusting that his sacrifice was their sacrifice and believing in him, they will be saved. And we thank you that you allow us to start at the end, that your grace allows us to be in that place of safety and hope from the very first moment we become a Christian. But pray you would guide us also as we want to grow in discipleship. We do want to understand our faith, and we're thankful that you allow us to have an understandable faith. A faith that is rooted not just in ritual, but also in history. A faith that is rooted in the fact that you have broken into this history more than once to guide us most profoundly as Jesus Christ. And Father, for those who are in a place that may have heard this as being like, you hate divorced people, God, may, may be clear, that's not what you said. You hated the men in, the, in, the, in our modern time, the women who would just casually and callously disregard the relationship and bring violence and hopelessness into the relationship. 
And Father, we do pray that if there are some relationships in our church that are struggling right now, that you would bring healing, repentance, and whatever it takes to restore them. And Father, we also pray that as we uh, are as a church, you know, in these times, which it seems like the enemy always has something, some kind of curveball that we often don't really even see coming, that throws us. Lord, may we respond to it with grace, with wisdom. God, give us your grace and wisdom as we seek to be for the children in this body, in this particular church that we are responsible for. May we be for them wisdom, hope, guidance, love, and truth. And we pray this all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who makes our lives possible simply because of who you are. Amen.